Resonate is a community that loves like Jesus. And we want you to experience that with us together. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each week or attend our weekly gatherings in Sherwood at 10 a.m. You also can join in on one of our community groups that meet during the week, either here at the church building or in homes. So to find out more about our community or our groups or to give to our ministry financially, please visit our website at resonatelife.org. We're continuing our sermon series called The Sermon on the Mount. And today's sermon is titled, The Law of Love, Righteousness. So today I want to open up by just talking a little bit about the idea of being exiled. Maybe you've heard this term before, exiled or exile, maybe from the Bible or from the other teaching. We all can be exiled from a land or we can be exiled from an idea or a cultural norm. And I believe the last couple of years, I sense that we have been exiled from a normal. People talk about the new normal or a new way of life that's going to be normal. And my prayer for you is in this new normal in which you live today and you're trying to figure out your daily, that you would continue to grow in your relationship with God and your understanding of yourself. And part of that is reading and applying the Bible to your life and to your actions. So I want to open up just with a little talk about the Bible and how it can apply to your life and how you can develop a devotion to the Word of God in your daily activity. Well, until the invention of the printing press in the 16th century, no one really owned a Bible or they didn't really read the Bible on their own. They read it in church or had it read to them in church. And in contrast, today, most Christians own their own Bible or they have Bibles, and we have access on our smartphones to an endless stream of versions at the tip of our fingertips. So the Bible is more accessible than it's ever been, and the tools to understand more about the Bible are more accessible than they've ever been. But never has the Bible been more available and never has the Bible been more misunderstood or really on the decline than since the 1960s. Many people know a lot about the Bible through study, but there's often a lack of sitting with the Bible to commune with God. So basic biblical liter illiteracy has been increasing dramatically over the last 50 years or so. So what's interesting to me is that this also coincides, the last 50 years or, or 60 years of life, this coincides with some major church movements like evangelicalism or the Jesus movement or seeker-sensitive church growth movement or emergent church growth movement. There has been quite a few movements over the decades and yet our understanding and engagement with the Bible, the Word of God, and really... The, the, the book in which we base Christianity from and these movements, that understanding of the Bible continues to decline. Well, I do have a reason for this, and that's because a lot of times ingrained in many of these movements that have surrounded Christianity, the Bible has been weaponized and used to shame a lot of people. So there's an aversion to the Bible. People don't want anything to do with it. People don't want anything to do with the church, the Bible, the people of the church, right? So people don't want maybe to pick up the Word of God because of the experience that they've had with the Word of God 
or they don't want to attend church because of the experience that they've had with the church. Well, there is a truth that still remains no matter what, that through simply reading and hearing the Bible, you give yourself a chance to enter the story and allow the story of the Bible to shape you, to shape your life, and to shape your actions. So the challenge we need to overcome is instead of being the Bible's critic or Christianity's critic, we need to simply allow the Word of God to speak to us. So I believe all of us can be the best version of ourselves when we commune with God through His Word. And all of us as the church, the church can be the best version of herself when all of us commune with God through His Word. So all Scripture then points to Jesus. And if we want a relationship with Jesus, then we're going to spend time with His Word, listening to His Word, and applying it to our lives and being in it on a regular basis. And I want to encourage you to do so. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets, he understood the Bible. He understood what the law and the prophets were. He understood the story leading up to his, his existence. He says, I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill these scriptures. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, <clears throat> you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want to explore that a little bit. He talks a lot about, and in just that short little passage of Scripture, he talks about Scripture. He talks about the commandments. He talks about the law and the prophets. He understands the Word of God. And he's speaking to people that, that they at least have an understanding, a head knowledge of the Word of God, but he's asking for a heart knowledge, a soul knowledge of the Word of God. So I want to explore two questions with this passage with those ideas in mind. First, how does putting Jesus at the center of my life and the center of everything impact how I read Scripture devotionally? And then second, how does Jesus complete the story of the Bible? And how does the story of the Bible shape my life as Jesus completes the story of the Bible? So in 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the Scriptures. So what exactly does Scripture say? Where does, where does Scripture say this? That's the first question I have when I read 1 Corinthians. And we might say that it points to one or two passages from the Old Testament, but in actuality, Paul is referring to the Old Testament as a whole. Just like Jesus was referring, I fulfilled the law and the prophets, Paul is referring to, as it says in the Scripture, the whole Old Testament as well. So there's a fulfillment of the whole Old Testament in Jesus Christ. Well, in Luke 24, on the first Easter morning, we find two very discouraged disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. 
And they were upset because they thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah and this great leader and all these things. They had an idea and an assumption in their mind about how and what Jesus was going to be and do. And then they went to this empty tomb and they didn't know what was going on. Jesus was gone. Was the body stolen? What was happening? Did Jesus really die? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that all these things were going on in their head. And this is what it says in verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. And when he came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead. But they urged him saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and after he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. You've heard this before, right? That sounds familiar. Their eyes were open, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us? Well, Jesus explained how everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the whole Bible, has to be fulfilled in him. Everything in Scripture points to and culminates in the Messiah suffering and rising so the forgiveness of sins could be preached in his name to all nations. Well, later on, he says this to the disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their eyes. He said to them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And a change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Look, I am sending to you what my father promised, but you are to stay in the city until you have been furnished with heavenly power. So from this, we can make a couple of observations about what this means for reading Scripture devotionally and understanding Jesus in the center of Scripture and the center of our lives. So notice that Jesus needed to open their minds. He needed to open their eyes to recognize Jesus. And had to open their understanding of the word of God to show them how to read the Bible in this Jesus-centered way. Well, we must read the Bible asking Jesus to open our minds and our eyes to find Jesus in it. And to allow God to do all he wants to do through scripture in our hearts. So there's this supernatural idea at this point which I believe in. God will open our eyes. And I also believe that there's multiple meanings to Scripture at this point. We can talk about that. There, there are multiple meanings to passages of Scripture. So I do believe in author's original intent, but I also believe in the, I would say, well, there is a church tradition called census plenior where the Bible's authors didn't really know the intent of the Scriptures they were writing. They didn't know the intent of God in their writing, so there's a larger meaning to scripture, and First Peter tells us this. So I believe there is a supernatural soul care when we read scripture. Something happens in our spirit that is eye-opening. 
I don't know if you, you're like me, but sometimes I go back to the same scriptures that I've read over and over and over again, that I've preached over and over and over again, over two decades of, of life preaching, and I read it again, and it's like with fresh eyes. It's like God opens my eyes. So the challenge that I have, and the common challenge that I have is there's only one meaning to every scripture, right? Well, a lot of us believe that, yet I don't necessarily believe that that's, that's true. There's multiple meanings to the same passage of Scripture and can be applied in many, many metaphorical ways and can be applied to our lives in many different ways. So this is an idea that there's only one meaning of Scripture that's based in secular humanism that was developed in the 17th century. There are many places in the New Testament where the author saw deeper meaning to Old Testament passages that the original authors didn't even directly intend. They, they borrow scriptures from the Old Testament to, to develop new ideas. They reframe scripture from the Old Testament to come up with a new direction to teach and to inspire people in Jesus. So in Matthew, like for example, in Matthew 2.15, it says this, he stayed there until Herod died, and this fulfillment, what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I have called my son out of Egypt. Well, there's a prophecy there, I have called my son out of Egypt, that Matthew is claiming to have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Well, this story, this is Herod coming after Jesus and wanting to slaughter all the babies. Any boy under the age of two. Yet this town is pretty small and poor. And so all the children that, that Herod was going to, to kill only equates to about 10 to 15 kids. That might be a little bit eye-opening because in a lot of traditions, you know, that, that's thousands of kids. It wasn't thousands of kids that were being killed by Herod. It didn't even make the news, 10 to, 10 to 15 kids. Well, in Hosea 11, that's who he's quoting, Matthew's quoting. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the further they went uh, from me. They kept sacrificing to Baals, and they burned incense to idols. So in Hosea, this is a warning. The son is Israel. So Matthew uses this scripture and he's looking through the lens of Jesus and he sees a parallel and uses it to point to Jesus and the fulfillment of the Old Testament in a way that Hosea didn't even originally intend to mean and didn't even intend to write. And, and the two passages of scripture are, are not really even connected in a way. Well, Matthew 2 says this fulfillment, the word spoken through Jeremiah, the, this, is, this is the same idea. Jeremiah the prophet, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and much grieving Rachel, weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were no more. So Rachel is married to Jacob, and she's weeping. So this was said in reference to the children dying in Bethlehem. So we have, we have fulfillment in the sun coming out of Egypt, right? And now we have this other reference of the children dying in Bethlehem. So Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31 and uses that passage to look for Jesus at the center of the story. And this is what it says in Jeremiah 31. The voice is heard in Ramah, right? And Ramah is, this is the holding city before the Jews were deported to, to captivity. So uh, the, 
the voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and wailing. It's Rachel crying for her children. She refuses to be consoled because her children are no more. So this is said in reference of the people being held in captivity. Matthew, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, sees a deeper meaning in these passages, and he suggests that even though the Jews of his day were living in the promised land, they're still in like a sense of exile. They're still in captivity. So he reframes this scripture into this metaphorical exile and entrapment and chainment, right, of sin and oppression. And of course, exile is not just, being, it's not just about where you're located. It's about being ruled by and, and suffering under foreign powers or foreign ideas, not under God's direct rule. So in Jeremiah's passage, it refers to Rachel's weeping. The weeping is the longing for deliverance from physical exile. And the Lord promises this deliverance is coming in the form of a new covenant that brings joy. So here Matthew identifies Jesus as the one who will finally deliver Israel out of this captivity. Fast forward to Matthew, right? So in Jeremiah, we have a physical captivity. In Matthew, he's proclaiming, in a sense, a metaphorical captivity. And ultimately, because of Jesus, Rachel's weeping because of captivity turns into joy because of the forgiveness of sins and the chains are broken. Well, honestly, all that to say, right? Because I mean, that was a, maybe a little bit complicated and, and a lot of scripture back and forth, and I said that really quick. If you try to look at the intent of the author and marry it to the New Testament like Matthew did, he made no sense. What does this teach me about the Bible? That's where we're at. What are those two ideas that I just went through teach me about my engagement with Scripture? Well, this gives me a lot of freedom to treat the Bible more freely because the New Testament does it and the New Testament authors have an imagination of application, they treat the Bible with more freedom as the living word of God that speaks directly to the hearts and guides my thoughts and actions in today's world, in their today's world. If they could do that, I, I believe that I can do that too, where I take the living word of God and apply it to my life. There has to be a time where yes, you want to know the author's original intent and you you want to, to know the cultural context and everything going on in that day and what did God mean then, but you also want to use your soul's imagination to embody heaven in our heart's mind, to be able to survive another day in this, I'll call it exile, from our normal. So to use the Bible in this time as a devotional book to speak to our hearts and to read the the Proverbs and the Psalms and the beauty of the poetry and, the, and the, the love that we see through the, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us freedom, that gives us life. We need that imagination, that soul care right now, that as we have been in exile from normal, that we can use the Bible to, to cultivate goodness and love in our lives. And just a side note, if you suddenly all of a sudden come to a conclusion about the Bible that doesn't fit a normal path of thinking or theology, 
Let's get into some communal discernment and talk through that. Over the last several years, I have been reshaped, shaped, reshaped, shaped by the Bible. I have come to conclusions about life and people and, and what we used to think and what we used to do and say back in the day five years ago, right? Where I used to say completely different things about certain subject matter that I do today. Why? Because I believe God has opened my mind and opened my eyes and he can do the same for you as well. So all this to say, the Bible story speaks to us. The Bible story shapes us. It changes us. It changes our soul. It changes our minds. It's transforming and it's renewing. And I pray that 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 helps and encourages you to get in it. So this leads me to my second question today. Then how does Jesus fulfill this Bible's story? Well, the Bible tells a story of God and God created humans, giving us a vocation to love God, love self, love others, love the earth, and love animals. So God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven as we love, as we love all these things, including ourselves. So, so we love God and love others as the two greatest, as, that is the greatest command is Jesus' question. So that is what the commission, that is what God has given us as a vocation on earth. Yet after this creation and after this commission and after this, this purpose that God created us to be and to live in, the story of the Bible tells about our rebellion. It become, we become estranged from God. We, we come under demonic powers and we fall into idolatry and we go into exile. And the rest of the Bible, like a cyclical pattern, is about God pursuing his people who have entered into exile, but God wants to restore them and, and the world. He wants to restore us and the world so that we might be a blessing and be blessed, that we can bless others and be blessed ourselves. So God does this by raising up descendants of Abraham, which includes Jacob and, and Rachel, right, to be means of restoring the world. And as such, Israel stands, Israel's basic, the metaphoric idea of Israel, they stand in for the whole human race. So God calls this Israel people his son and delivers them out of Egypt. But we see Israel continues to reject God through the Old Testament. They fall back into bondage to demonic powers of idolatry and return back into captivity of exile. So even though Israel fails to be faithful to God, God chooses to be faithful in his covenant keeping on behalf of Israel. So God himself becomes a descendant of Israel, standing in as a represent representative of all of Israel. And that representative then metaphorically of all people. And while ancient Israel was faithless, Jesus was faithful. He came to lead his people out of exile which is tied to the deliverance of sin and symbolized by when we take communion, the Lord's Supper, it's symbolized by this, this act, this act of grace. So Jesus' resurrection declares that the exile of Israel and therefore all of humanity has ended. So this, this fulfillment, this idea of Jesus coming and, and living and fulfilling this promise of covenant that God created us, 
so that we would love God and love others, that, that purpose then is restored. That purpose, through, that purpose of our creation is restored through Jesus. All sins have been forgiven. The destroying angel has been defeated. The power of idolatry nullified. And then the love of Jesus reigns supreme. So what do we do with that? Because of the fulfillment that Jesus has, I fulfilled the law and the prophets, he says in Matthew 5. He says that, in several times, and Paul said, Paul reinforces it in the New Testament. This is the fulfillment of, of Jesus and his love for all of humanity. So what do I do with that? I take that forward, and I, and I, I take that fulfillment into life, and I become that fulfillment to humanity, that we live a life of love towards others, that we live a life of generosity towards others. We live a life of forgiveness towards others. Our life becomes a life of forgiveness and life giving to other people. As Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in the Old Testament and all that God had created us to be, Jesus fulfills that and restores life and humanity in their original creation and purpose so that I would love others, that I would give that love to others so that they would experience the same. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, Lord, the love of Jesus and the fulfillment of all of history. Lord, that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he resurrected and he ascended and he promised that he would come again. So Lord, we live in that hope that ultimately Jesus will always reign supreme, that his love would be our purpose. Lord, help us to give that love to others. Help us to be like Jesus to other people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.